Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, Tim shares his path graduating with a master's in engineering and quickly losing his job as the scandal at Enron unfolded. We learn how he got back on his feet, how he leveraged the MBA to get a job in investment banking on the West Coast during the great financial crisis in 2009, and eventually how he had a 10-year run from associate all the way up to director at Barclays. This is a long one, but Tim was a really insightful guest, so I wanted to unpack what each stage was like for him. Hope you enjoy. All right, Tim, thanks so much for joining the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So it'd be great if you could just give the listeners a short summary of your bio. Sure. No problem. So uh, the, the quick two minute, uh, graduated from the University of Virginia with a degree in uh, systems engineering, um, went into the energy industry for a little while after that, but you know, ultimately decided that I wanted to get into something that was uh, a little bit more... Um, Finance related, uh, a little bit more, um, you know, in depth in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of the work that I was doing and, and the numbers around that and, you know, really getting to work with, uh, with C-suite level executives. So ultimately after a couple, four or five years in the energy industry, um, went back to business school at the University of Michigan with the uh, intent of getting into investment banking. So graduated in 2009. Tough year to come out. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we're, Would you we're, say we're, 08 or 09 was worse? For people, um, I would say '09 was probably worse because you know it didn't really hit until the end of '08 because I was doing my summer internship in in 2008 and sort of towards the tail end of that, that's when people started to get really nervous of Am I actually going to get the offer to you know to 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 come back here um, mm -hmm. the following year? So it, it was okay. uh, you know it was rough, but it, flip side, it kind of worked out well because you came in on a in a lean class. Um, you know, which, which always helps in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of when you're thinking about your, your career progression and, and, uh, forward momentum. Um, but so did my, did my summer internship in 2008, uh, UBS, uh, in the Los Angeles office, mm -hmm. uh, and then came out of business school in 2009, started full-time at, at UBS. But, uh, you know, given what we were just talking about with the, uh, circumstances around 2009, Kind of ultimately made the decision to to look around a little bit and see if there was something um, something else that was a little bit more uh, firm footing in the Los Angeles market and moved over to Barclays uh, in the financial sponsors and West Coast corporate coverage role mm -hmm. uh, in May of 2010 and then stayed there until 
April of 2016, at which point I moved to the London office, uh, also within the financial sponsors team and, uh, stayed there until, uh, until very recently. Very cool. Thanks for that. That helps frame everything. So let's go all the way back to, well, first off, I see Virginia, I see Duke, Michigan, I see West coast, London. You're kind of like a very global (laughs) character. So give the audience a little bit, like, are you, where are you from? Um, tell me a little bit about like, you know, why kind of East coast, Midwest, any, anything in particular? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's tough question to answer. Um, my, my parents are both from the East coast. My dad's from, uh, the New Jersey, New York area. My mom's from, uh, from the South, from North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, we moved around a bunch as, as a kid and kind of ultimately settled, uh, around the uh, junior high, high school years, uh, outside of Chicago, but ultimately decided that, uh, you know, living in negative 20 degree weather every winter wasn't, uh, wasn't the ideal situation for me. So, uh, you know, I liked, I liked the East coast. I liked the Southeast. And, um, after looking at a bunch of different schools, ultimately decided that, uh, university of Virginia was just the right fit for me more than anything. You know, mm-hmm. it's, I, I don't know that it's beautiful anybody, campus. I mean, beautiful. It, it is, it's great. And I yeah. don't know that, I mean, I'm sure that people can say, I, I, this is why I chose this. And this is why I chose this. Look, there's a lot of different schools I could have chosen. I'm sure that I would have been very, very happy at, at all of them. Um, I, I asked because we actually have high school students now like paying more often and being in the community okay. like trying to figure out like okay, yeah. what school should I go to and yeah it yeah. yeah, does well for finance placement even though you didn't use it for that um no no and I can only imagine the pressure of high school students these days I mean it was uh, substantially easier for me when I was when I was in high school I just had to worry about going to class and playing sports and that was it you know these kids need to figure out, you know, 17 different things to put on a, uh, on a resume before I even knew what a resume was. So, (laughs) so, okay. So you come out, so, um, systems engineering, uh, quick recap, what is that? And then why, um, you got the, the master's in engineering management right after at Duke. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about like oil and gas. Tell me what specifically you were doing there and what is that career like? Is there any, it's, is it, Complete, it sounds like it's completely unrelated to finance, it's all engineering based, but uh, a little so, bit. Yeah, sort of. Um, I mean, so I, I guess to answer your question around systems engineering, what was it? It's, it's a lot of decision theory and optimization and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't, I don't want to insult anybody here, but I, I don't know that it's necessarily like your hardcore engineering, like an electrical or mechanical or, or right. chemical or something. Um, but there is a lot of, uh, of uh, computer-based uh, stuff in that. It's probably even more so in, in today's world. But uh, you know, I, programming didn't sort of uh, didn't sort of mesh with me very much. And, and a lot of the a lot of the jobs that folks were interviewing for out of uh, the systems engineering program uh, at that time, at least, um, were in IT and IT consulting. And mm-hmm. it just didn't feel like the direction that I wanted to go. So. Ultimately, I decided to do the one-year um, Master of Engineering Management program at Duke, which I felt would continue my my engineering background, but also get me more into business courses, which I did not take or did not take a tremendous amount of while I was at while I was at UVA. So, taking the accounting and taking taking some of the initial finance courses and, and sort of dipping my toes in, in those classes. Tell me how, um, how, tell me a little bit about like what your mindset was back then. Like, were you very much career oriented or were you very much like, I just enjoy engineering and I, I'll fall into a job. Like I know at least for myself, like it's very much, if you come from a family that 
isn't struggling financially, sometimes I feel like it can put pre it, it almost, you can be a little bit lost and waffling and, and there's yeah. not like that, that drive to like, Oh, I need to get a job right away. I mean, I still felt that drive because I didn't want to be re relying on my parents when I graduated, yeah. but yeah. tell me how you felt. Were you the same way? Were you like, I need to get that job or were you like, oh, I'm just going to explore. That's a, it's a fair question. I mean, I think there was definitely pressure and this was probably more just, just at the university level that there was mm -hmm. just pressure to have a job and have an, have the internship your junior year and have the, have the job coming out of your senior year and, and, you know, being able to say to your friends and your, your classmates and whatnot, that this is what I'm doing and feeling like you were successful in that regard. But I, I think you made a, a very good point in terms of the fact that it wasn't, you know, if I don't do this, I don't know, I don't know what I'm going to do or, or how the world is going to work out. And then on top of that, I mean, and you know, it's sort of the, the same thing. You said you have, have high school students sitting here. I mean, I didn't know at 18 what I wanted to do. I didn't know at 22 what I wanted to do. Um, you know, I don't even know that at, at 30, I knew what I wanted to do. Right. Like was anyone uh, guiding you like for that decision? Like, Oh, I'm going to get my oh. master's. Like that decision is a pretty big decision. I mean, it's expensive. It's, you know, another year in school. Was it like, yeah just looking at what kids were doing coming out of that program? It was, uh, no, I think it was my own personal, it was my own personal decision. Um, you know, it, 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 say it was expensive. I mean, it's not on the level of like an MBA or anything like that. So it wasn't yep. as though I'm sitting here thinking about, you know, a, a, a huge, um, you know, burdensome amount of, of debt or anything like that. But mm -hmm. I think it really just came down to, I didn't feel like a, there was a job out there that I was passionate about and that I wanted to do something else and something a little bit different. So going to a different school, going, you know, getting, getting the masters in order to, to kind of continue to feel around and see if there was something out there that was, that was of more interest or at least, you know, kind of a little, little bit of fire and, and gave me some passion to, to get excited about. So did that first job do that? And what was it? And if not, <laughs> tell me a little bit about, about that. Yeah. So, uh, I imagine most, uh, most students listening to this have probably done case studies on this business, but my first job was with, uh, Enron. Um, so <laughs> at, at the time it was a tremendous opportunity to get, I mean, you know, talking about we're we're sitting here talking about investment banking. I was working with, uh, kids coming out of MBA who were turning down investment banking jobs to work at Enron. That's how, that's how popular, um, that role was and that, that job was. So what, yeah, was, the it was, what was the title exactly for Enron? What was, what were you doing? There? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. Um, it was, it, it was a, let's call it an analyst rotational program. Okay. So it was a, it was a two year rotational program of which you do, uh, I want to say six month, six month rotations in four different groups. Almost and like then, an, F, almost like an FLDP kind of deal. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so kind of a finance bent to it. Um, there um, was, there was an aspect to it. My first, I only made it through one rotation cause I was only there for about five months before, uh, before the meltdown. But, uh, <laughs> oh there were definitely, your timing was, was great. So there, yeah, exactly. No, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That and coming out of business school in 2009, I'm uh, really, really hitting it. Um, so there were definitely rotate, there were trading rotations. Absolutely. There were, you know, finance department rotations for sure. My first rotation happened to be in the, uh, energy services group. Okay. Um, and if you ask me today to explain to you what I did, I don't know that I can actually remember. Um, so that, as everything was melting ago, down, how, how surreal was it? What was it like? It was pretty strange. Um, I actually, 
I, along with a large majority of my group were taken into a room and we had to start making collection calls to, uh, to clients because they needed to, to start collecting cash. So, you know, again, thinking what, what was I 20, 23 at the time, first, first job out of school. I mean, no idea what I'm doing here other than I'm getting thrown in a room and trying to call customers and, and you know, beg for the, the $15,000 or $20,000 that they owe us so that we can uh, continue to exist for another, another week or two. And so how long did that go on? And then what was it like when the writing was on the wall? Like when it, I, I think, I think that was the, at least for me, I mean, I, I'm sure there were I'm, others. I'm trying to remember back then. I remember hearing about it. I mean, it was a massive scandal. Like it was just basically yeah, a huge exactly. accounting scandal, right? Where. It, the, exa- yeah. They were, you know, it was, it was an accounting scandal. It shell, was shell I mean, companies, right? Plus on top of that, they controlled, they controlled the trading market, right? They, they effectively were the market maker. So they just kept changing the curves as it fit what they needed, right? And nobody could say anything because they were the market maker, right? So as the curve moved against them, they just shifted the curve and said, well, here's what it is now and continued to basically mark to market, remark to market their positions uh, in order to make sure that it was, uh, you know, working out in their favor until ultimately- That never the, ends well. The, the, the cards <laughs> crumbled. Exactly. Exactly. So- Wow. And I can't yeah. even remember who the the whistleblower was. There a specific whistleblower internally, or was it like there's there's a, isn't there a movie about this whole? There there is uh, smartest, smartest, guy, man, smartest smartest guy in the room. room. Yeah. Or exactly. Man or, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's supposed to be yeah. really good. I want to go watch that now. Now you tell me. It's it, it it took me a long time. My my buddy actually finally convinced me to watch it. It's uh it's it's pretty interesting. Just when you you know hear about all the different characters and whatnot. I I can't remember all the names. I remember uh, Jeff Skilling and, Skilling, and yeah. Ken Lay, and that's. That's sort of the two, uh, two main guys. Yeah. Um, okay. So you, what, how did you even recover from that? Did you have any sort of heads up? Like, did you see the writing on the wall? It had like a month to kind of start looking or what was it? No, no. I mean, it's like one day, you know, again, I, it started to feel a little bit weird, right. When I'm getting called into a room and and making, uh, you know, making collection calls, that's sort of a strange thing. But again, I did, I I don't know that I necessarily had enough, uh, enough wherewithal at that time to, 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 yeah, exactly. Um, so no, I mean, it was one morning or whatever, midday, and, and effectively, they just kind of called each each division head or team head or, or whatever you want to call it, um, sort of grouped up their team and whatever message they wanted to tell their, their specific team, but effectively it was, hey, don't show up to work tomorrow. And uh, like, okay. <laughs> uh, what was going through your was, head? What was going through your head when they told you that? Um, I got to pay rent. No, I mean, I, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't, you know, again, fortunately I wasn't in a, uh, you know, in a position where I needed to worry financially at that, at that point in time. And I mean, mm-hmm. Houston's also a pretty cheap city to, yeah, to, to live in for those people that have experience there. It's kind of a nice, uh, <laughs> nice place to wind up, especially if you're in finance. Um, but, uh, no, it was more just, okay. I, don't, what am I supposed to do now? Right. It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a panic or a fear. It was just sort of a little bit of confusion of this was my job and I was showing up to my job and now you're telling me that it's gone. And so there's okay, no, there's no kind of no warning, nothing. So it's actually pretty interesting right. because there's a lot of parallels to what's going on today. I'm sure a lot of exactly. people are going into their, into their job or virtually even yeah. just being told, sorry, it's over. Yeah, exactly. Um, so tell me like how you approached mentally and how you approached just like tactically um, trying to figure out what your next 
job would be? Yeah, just, I can't, I think it was December 3rd, uh, 2001. If, uh, if somebody wants to pop up a calendar on what day that was, but, uh, I don't, I don't recall. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, let's say I took, took the rest of the week and the weekend off to sort of get my head straight. And then just like anybody, um, you sit down at the computer, you start, you know, start, I mean, there's substantially more resources now than there were, you know, 20, 20 years ago, fortunately, but mm-hmm. you know, you start, start sending out emails to your network, uh, start reaching out to folks, start, start hammering the websites and seeing, uh, you know, seeing what's available and, you know, for better or worse, when you're six months out of school, 12 months out of school, whatever, whatever it is, you're, you're, you're cheap and, uh, you know, still pretty, uh, pretty flexible and pretty fungible. Right. So you can, you can be move wherever. So So did you stay in Houston? Did you, I did, I did stay. Yeah, I did. I did find something in find something in Houston. Uh, so I ended up staying there for, I took one job, uh, rather quickly then actually, uh, sort of had gave me a uh, gave me flashbacks there was there were rumors that they were going to get bought out um and so being uncertain what was going to happen there i started looking um started looking around again so i moved pretty quickly from you had a jump uh, to two you had to jump out of two places within the first year of being of graduating yeah so. 13, 13 14 tough. months yeah exactly yeah. okay so yeah. um Okay. So where did you end up for like a good couple of years before the whole business school? Stint? Yeah. So I ended up at a, at a company called Entergy, mm-hmm. which is, uh, basically a Southern, a, a Southern utility. So they own Louisiana power and gas, uh, New Orleans, uh, yep. the, the Eastern part of Texas, yeah, Mississippi. My, dad, so. my mom and dad are down in uh, New Orleans now. And it's funny. He just sent okay. a bill from Entergy. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So they, they, the, the Texas marketplace at that point in time was opening up to competition. So effectively they had deregulated the energy, the energy industry in Texas, um, in those, uh, in, in the early two thousands. And mm-hmm. so energy created, a created a division to compete within the deregulated Texas marketplace, which is some of the stuff that that Enron was getting into too. And yeah. some of the stuff that, some of the stuff that I was uh, just sort of starting to, starting to get into at Enron as well. So, so it, it made what, sense. What were you doing day to day coming in? Uh, basically working with commercial and industrial clients on helping them to set up contracts uh, around their, around their energy usage, which probably doesn't sound super sexy, but if you think about it, um, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of these companies that spend millions and millions of dollars, uh, every year on, on energy. So it's, it, it's a huge component of their, um, cost base. Well, call it fixed or fixed or variable costs, depending upon the type of, uh, the type of business that it is. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about the market deregulating, you can sit here and go to these guys and I mean, you can save them up to 20, 25, 30%. And on top of that, there's ways there, there, there were ways at the time. And I mean, even, even more so now with a lot of these smart meters and everything like that to basically structure the product that says, do you need to be running your heavy machinery at five o'clock in the afternoon? Because everybody's coming home, everybody's turning on their TV, everybody's turning on their internet, everybody's doing this. And guess what? That's where you're paying prime rates for, for your electricity, right? So can you run it at three in the morning? Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you're you're sort of changing the the dynamic of what this uh, what this company's cost structure looks like. So that was that's kind of where we alluded to. There there was some 
financial aspects to it, but it was so was that like very, an, very, you were doing that like analysis in Excel and then doing some legal work in the actual contract to structure it, so that type of stuff. Where you what, yeah, what, you were working working with them through through the contract, doing a little bit of uh, uh, Excel analysis. They our, our company had actually created a, an, an online system which you could you know plug uh, plug the various values in and then you know sort of generate generate various reports and savings reports and all that all that kind of stuff. So a lot of it. A lot of it became automated at that point in time, but there was definitely some Excel work and, yep. and yep. you know, combined okay. with other stuff. So, cool, man. And so you're there for a couple of years, and you're just thinking, man, I just, you know, this oil and gas thing or this energy thing, I don't know, long term, or what was the thought process of go, going to get an MBA? No, um, or it was just such a hot market for banking the, in '06. No, <laughs> <laughs> you're like, I'm I mean, going to go to banking. It, it, <laughs> exactly. I think. I mean, I think it's probably a combination, a combination of a couple things. So I had, uh, I had a, a buddy who was in banking in, in Houston and, you know, had talked to him a lot about it. And a lot of the stuff that he was doing sounded very, very interesting to me in terms of, you know, I just, again, being an engineer, I had a very mathematical, very, very numbers focused brain. And so I liked, I liked that kind of stuff and, and the type of work that he said that he was doing. And then two, actually, um, you know, going on a, uh, going on a nice trend here, the, um, Entergy actually ended up, uh, deciding to get rid of the, uh, deregulated division. So it was sort of the, the question of, did I want to go back to working for the regulated utility parent yeah. or did I want to less sexy, you know, less exciting. I, yeah. And, you know, it's kind of the question of, was I going to have to, was I going to have to move, you know, move somewhere else? And, you know, I mean, I didn't necessarily have, have ties to Houston per se, but, you know, I don't know that I was really itching to, to kind of continue to move further, uh, further into the Gulf coast. Got it. Okay. So you apply to a bunch of programs or you're like, Hey, I'm going to go to Michigan. What was the thought no, applied process? To, yeah. Applied to a bunch of programs. And I mean, I think if, hopefully, hopefully the advice that, uh, that most people will give you when you kind of think about, um, you know, business school and, and, you know, spending that kind of spending that kind of time and spending that kind of money, both giving up a career, if you're going full time, as opposed to going part time, giving up, you know, giving up a salary and giving up, a giving up a career. And then also, um, putting money out. I mean, you want to try and get into the best program that you can. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, now with that said, you need to have some geographical considerations, right. Um, as well, uh, you know, I mean, Virginia's got a great, got a great business school. Um, but you know, you're going to be probably a little bit more East coast bound. Whereas mm -hmm. if you go to, you know, something like a, a UCLA Anderson, which obviously I worked with a lot of, a lot of guys in LA, um, from UCLA Anderson, mm -hmm. also a great program, but you're probably going to be a little bit more, a little bit more West coast bound. So just some considerations kind of in terms of, in terms of where you're thinking about. So yeah, look, I applied to, you know, some, what I thought were, were top tier schools. I mean, kind of falling within the top, top 10 or 15 at that point in time that, that, that I was applying and, um, you know, going back to, you know, sort of the, the thoughts around Virginia, it was, where was the fit? Where did I think that the program, the, the program and the curriculum made the most sense? And then geographically, did I think that it was going to give me a situation where I was diverse enough to, to be able to say, all right, if I want to go East Coast, I can go East Coast. If I want to go West Coast, I can go West Coast. Um, and I think Michigan, Michigan fit the bill for me. Awesome. So you were there. You did really well there. Um, 
you kind of were VP of the investment banking club. So you kind of knew banking from the, from the get-go was kind of your main target. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Tell me how you prepped kind of going in, if at all. And did you, you know, right away, like just tell people what it was like, like all the cocktail hours and the, all that <laughs> stuff, <laughs> like in terms of what you could expect. You're talking about when I was, uh, when you started your MBA, like that first, when semester. I started, were you okay. like immediately into the, into the recruiting scene there? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, again, I don't, you know, it's, it's, it's 10 years ago, so I don't know what, uh, I don't know what the world is, is completely like to, well, I, I do know what the world is like cause I was on the other side for a while and it's definitely shifted back a little bit in terms of, in terms of the timing and just the number of events has, uh, has come down a little bit um, just because of the the, the budgetary um, budgetary constraints. But yeah, I mean, it was probably you know second week of school, right? Bam, you're you're going to this event, you're going to that event. I mean, it's 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 four or five. It was another it, you know it was another uh, uh, another course that you had to take was was going to all these events and going to all these having uh, drinks and try not to get too drunk um, in front of anybody. <laughs> exactly. And, and figuring, figuring out which, uh, which circle do I want to be a part of? And, and, you know, am I asking the right question? And am I, how, many, how did you get comfortable with that stuff? What, were you comfortable in that? Were you naturally like good at networking and just like uh, um, engaging on these cocktail hours? I'm horrible at networking and no, not at all, not at all a natural yeah. at that. What, what did I do? I, uh, like how did you get yourself comfortable? You just forced yourself to go talk to people or you just stood around in a circle and listened to everyone else talk? Well, no, I think that, it, I mean, if, if you want to get, if you want to get yourself recognized and, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, really what you want to do in those sessions is be known, but not be too well known unless you're a master networker, right? And you're just incredibly personable. I mean what you want is for people to go back and say, yep, met Tim. He's a nice guy. Asked a smart question next, right? Because all that does is get you invited to the next event or the next round or, or, you know, ultimately get you invited to the interview. And that's your, that's your opportunity. Right. Like that's, (laughs) it's great advice. That's all that you want, all that you want to do because you don't want to be the guy who's like, Tim. Yep. That guy asked some pretty stupid questions or that guy didn't stop talking or that guy interrupted three people. Uh, you know, who are trying to trying to ask questions. It's it once you get a negative mark against you, it's just uh, it just it just makes the world a, a, a very difficult place in terms of uh, you know in terms of kind of trying to get to the the next steps of the uh, you know the of the recruiting process. Yeah, so info sessions and cocktail hours have that in common where you can only lose it, the job. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So how did I? Yeah, how did I get comfortable? Um, I usually tried to pick out the people that had uh, had had oil and gas backgrounds. Um, because I could seem rather intelligent <laughs> speaking to them. And, you know, the reality was, at least in, in my circumstances, there weren't too many people that had that background. So I was able to, I was able to stand out in that regard. And then you just kind of get a list of about five questions and make them general enough that you can really ask them to anybody, obviously take into consideration the level, right? You don't want to be asking an analyst the same question that you're asking an MD or, or, or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, get a, get a list of sort of five to 10 questions because ultimately somebody else is going to ask your question, right? And then mm-hmm. if that's the only question you had, you're, you're uh, kind of SOL at that point in time. Um, and, and, you know, just go in there and try and 
try and appropriate, you know, try and interject it at the appropriate time. Mm-hmm. Get the question in there. Let a let a couple other people ask questions. The circle sort of naturally evolves with people coming and people going. So as you sort of see changes, stick out your hand, say thank you. Can I get your card and and walk away and go to the you know go to the next person. And I mean, at some point, it just kind of becomes. I don't know if natural is the right word. It's not natural to sit around in a circle and and um, you know ask people questions with a with with all these folks around you. But at some point, it just kind of becomes a little bit more. That's comfortable, if you will. Or, yeah, that's or, helpful. That's helpful. I think there's still people who really struggle with that because it's it's nerve wracking. It's kind of weird. It's like, am I in an interview right now? And like, yeah, hey, for sure. Me, so yeah, for sure. Um, and 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 the answer to that is yes, you are. You know, and you know, not to not to make people nervous about the situation because I mean, especially people that um, people that find that tough, then sort of take that you know take that and, and make themselves more nervous, but. You know, the reality is just like anything, just practice, right? Mm-hmm. Practice, practice asking the questions, ask a friend to sit down with you. And it sounds stupid, right? But just ask a friend to sit down with you and say it out loud because you can sit there and say, okay, these are the five questions I'm going to ask in my head. But then when you try and say it, it comes out weird or you forget how you're going to say it. And if you've said it to your friend 27 times, it's going to come out normal the 28th time, right? Yeah. Totally. And so it's just, it, it's just a lot getting, of getting over, and, yeah, getting over the embarrassment of repeating it to, <laughs> to a lot of people, yeah, to your friends, exactly. I exactly. think is, is a great advice. And that's how I, I, that's why I always push people before like an important interview. I'm like, do at least one mock interview, please. For sure. You, you know, you think you're good. You think you got all the answers in your head, but yep. it's very different when you start hearing yourself speak and you're like, wait, I don't really like that. And then you're then your mind starts going like this yeah, rather yeah. than you being super confident in what's coming out of your mouth, which allows you to kind of demonstrate your body language just is more comfortable and you're exactly comfortable in your skin. Anyways. So I want to keep, keep it going cause we're, we're yeah. keeping you a long time, but um, so you end up at uh, UBS for the, the, um, the, the summer in between your first and second year, correct? Yes. Yep. And this is in the financial sponsor. Oh, no, sorry. This is in what group? It was a generalist. Generalist group. Okay. So, and then yep. this is obviously like when the world started melting near the end of uh, August 2008, right? There was kind of some yeah, exactly. initially going yep. through. So tell me about um, what was it like that summer um, working crazy hours, but then sp- more specifically, and this was LA? This, the yes. Officer. Okay. Yep. And then exactly. more specifically, tell me a little bit about... Um, if you remember, like, was the return offer rate just horrible because of everything crumbling or was it kind of promised then withdrawn? I would love to just hear about um, the return offer rates, kind of what was being communicated yep. during while, you know, as the global financial crisis started kind of, you were, you were kind of at the top and started to yep. press down. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yep. Um, you know, I mean, obviously I can give you the numbers from LA, which is going to be a little bit skewed because it's just a small, it's a small sure. population, right? So the percentages are going to be off, but, um, I think it was, it was, uh, five of us and then three of us got the offer to come back. So, okay. So like 60, 60, you know, 60, 60% hit rate. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the entire population, I, I don't know if 60% is, is exactly right, but it's probably, it was probably around that figure. I know that we had a very 50 and 70. Exactly. I mean, we had a very, very big summer class in the, in the three digits, you know, 115 plus or something like that, just in, just in the U S. Yeah. And it was certainly in the double digits when, you know, when the, uh, 
when the final offers went out and when when the acceptances came out. But I mean, in terms of in terms of the offer, it was it was pretty standard. Um, mm-hmm. You know, giving you the offer to come back. Um, you know, obviously not everybody's getting this. We'd like you to give us an answer as as soon as possible and as soon as you you know feel comfortable. Uh, you know, comfortable making the decision and. That was it. It was straightforward. It wasn't rescinded. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't given and, you, and then taken you back feel a like, couple weeks later. Did you feel lucky at that point because of what you saw happening? Or did you feel like, oh, this is maybe I could leverage this to another offer? What was the thought process there? Because I know a lot of people no. think, uh, you know, I can um, leverage this. Yeah. Um, that's, a, that's a very good question. And I think that there's a, a couple of points to consider around that. To answer, to answer your exact question, no, I never thought about leveraging it. That was the place that was the place that I wanted to be. And that's where I wanted to get the offer. If I wanted something else, I would have taken a different decision for the, for the summer. Mm-hmm. Right. So how did you make that decision? You had, you had multiple offers for different banks at, at certain summers at certain, uh, for the summer. Yes. But the only, I have to think back now. I think that the only one that I had in Los Angeles was UBS. I think that was actually the only why LA, why LA was such a draw to you. Um, <laughs> you were, you were done with the Michigan. <laughs> I I, I, I was actually, I was, yeah. I remember one, one day that I forgot something at home and I had to walk back from class and then walk back to, uh, walk back to class to get it. It was brutally cold. And I had this monster Jack with jacket with like this huge fur hood that everybody made, everybody made fun of me for, but you know, I I had been living in Texas. Right. So, (laughs) um, and yeah, I just, I was like, man, I, I, I can't handle this anymore. Can't handle it. It gave me, you know, the, the Chicago flashbacks and, yeah, I'd always wanted to get to the West Coast, um, mm-hmm. and you know, I felt like I felt like it was a good opportunity. And I figured, look, worst case scenario, I don't like it, things don't work out. There's a ton of banking jobs in New York, and yeah. I can probably uh, figure out a way to get back there if I, you know, if I if I need to. Yeah. Um, whereas if you're trying to go the reverse way, that's a pretty uh, a pretty tough path. So why do you say that? I'm curious because sometimes people would say, "Oh, New York, it's easier to get at it because New York is like the the flag tends to be the headquarters, the flagship, um, and sometimes easier to get regional versus going regional flagship." Um, You're just saying you just felt like it's just so many more opportunities it, in New York. It's just that yeah, it's just a number. I mean yeah, yes, it's a it's a fair point. You have less people going for the regional offices, but you also have less positions. You have more people going for New York offices. You have more positions, but I think the reality, I mean, again, going back to the percentage figures, if you have a class of three and you add one person to that class, that's a huge percentage increase, right? If you've got a class of 25 and you add one person to that class, then you can probably figure a place to, to, to slot them in. Right. Yeah. Um, and especially from like a cost, you know, a a cost based perspective, right? Because very, I mean, again, I don't, I don't know how all the, all the banks work, but so you think about it, you know, so you get this offer, you're psyched. You're like, it's in LA. This is where I want to yep. be. I wouldn't have chosen. Yep. So tell me, was the summer really tough? Was it like hundred hour weeks or is AD a little more chill? Cause it's LA or what, what was that? Like? Uh, it, well, if you, if you think back to UBS LA at that point in time, it was, uh, kind of one or two years post post Molus leaving and starting up his own shop. And, you know, I mean, I'm sure that there's people can probably read read stories on WSO about the uh, the UBS LA office Molus uh, you know Molus days and, and the work sort of ethic that what they <laughs> take from that what they want right um, but uh, no I, it was certainly not not chill by any means um, I mean so you're saying culturally and, it wasn't it it was still ingrained there to work very hard and it was similar absolutely to in New York and it absolutely was long hours absolutely okay yeah okay. yeah um, 
but it was great. Uh, loved the people, loved the people that I worked with. It was a great, it, it was a great, um, and this was in finance. This, this, general, this was generalist, but then tell me about was, the yeah. process of like, then you were, you were given a full-time offer in a generalist pool or in financial mm -hmm. sponsors. Yeah. So they, it, it was in a generalist pool. Um, so it was basically the office was set up where they had a tech team okay. and they had a generalist and they had a generalist pool. Okay. So I was in the generalist pool, which keeps you out of the, keeps you out of the tech, the, the tech team. Okay. And so that was the offer that was given. That was the offer that I accepted. But ultimately from the summer to, to the full time, they had uh, changed how they wanted to uh, arrange the, arrange the office. I don't know if this was um, corporate wide or if this was, if this was just in the LA team, but mm -hmm. effectively they decided that they wanted to start slotting the analysts and the associates into uh, specific teams rather than having a generalist pool. Okay. So what, any thoughts of why that might have been, um, just I maybe consistency I mean, of the teams you're working with in New York. Potentially consistency or potentially from a, a just, just easier cost structure perspective okay. to say like, this is the person okay. on our team and makes sense. Know. Yeah. Cause they're like, okay, this, this your cost, right? You're an extensive cost. So <laughs> how do we yeah. allocate that cost to you? Yeah, exactly. Did this person work 25% of their time for this, right. you know, right, who, right, who right, knows. Right. right. But I, I mean, they didn't, they didn't share those specific details. It's That's just kind of my, my so, guess. So they but, told you financial sponsor, you're going to be financial sponsors, Lev Finn, or you were like, Hey, yeah, financial, they told me financial sponsors, Lev Finn. Were you and, excited about that? Or what, what were your thought processes? And then tell me a little bit about for the listeners that don't know what that is and like what yep. your day to day is. Can you give them a little quick little primer? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, I was, I was excited about it in terms of, uh, I was happy to be going back. I was happy to, I was happy to have the role and, and I liked the folks in that team, um, yeah. you know, all else being equal. I would have preferred it to be a generalist role because I think that you get more experience across the board. And especially as a junior banker, what you really want is to get as much experience as possible, right? On as many deals as possible, on as many variety of deals as possible, on as many products as possible, um, in, in my opinion. Yep. Um, but, you know, with that said, I mean, fine. It's a great, you know, it's a great team. It's a great, it's a, it's a very, very technical, uh, technical product, which is a great place to be as a junior banker, in my opinion, right? A lot of modeling, a lot of, uh, a lot of analysis, a lot of going through terms and, and, uh, terms and conditions and term sheets and stuff like that. Um, so what, to answer your question, what is that? So again, they, it, it at UBS at that time, financial sponsors and leveraged finance was a single team, mm -hmm. right? So, what is financial sponsors? That is you covering private equity firms, right? So you think about your, uh, you know, Apollo, TPG, Hellman and Friedman, uh, mm -hmm. Blackstone. I mean, all the all the big names that you can that you can toss out there, um, and you are basically working with uh, working with those financial sponsors, helping them to purchase companies, mm -hmm. right? So you're providing when, the financing. You're providing the financing. You're potentially providing uh, providing advisory advice if you know if if they want that, and if you have a team that um, you, you know if they happen to have a, a senior banker that you know knows a tremendous amount about that about that industry, and they feel like it's it's beneficial, they may hire you from an advisory role. So, okay. but absolutely, majority of financial sponsor work is going to be providing financing to purchase those companies. Now, in the model uh, you're doing on that financing is it different from like a specific you're not are you building the actual m&a model for for lbo model yeah are you building that actual lbo model for the private equity fund or are uh, they typically not they'll have their own yeah but um, you guys on your side too 
yep, you'll build yours and then they'll, they'll feed you their view of what they think the business can do. Right. Mm -hmm. You obviously as a bank need to have your own view of what you think the business can do. So So they say it's going to go like this because they (laughs) want to give you, they want, they want to make sure that they can get as much debt as possible on the, on the business. Yes, but I mean, Dynam- just fair, the dynamics. I'm just trying to learn the dynamics of like, yeah, I they're mean, pushing, to, they're pushing to, you for cost lower. They want as cheap a debt as they can get. As cheap a debt as they can get, as much debt as they can get, right? Yeah. Um, for sure. I mean, that's that's always the case, right? Because that drives that drives their equity returns. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I mean, t- to be fair, I would say that uh, it is usually going to be uh, more conservative than the management's case. And the financial sponsor will almost certainly, again, this isn't going to be shared with you and they're not going to give you the details around it, but they're almost certainly going to have their own equity case for, for the business, right? The model that they give you is their, here's our, here's our costs to cover, uh, you know, to cover the, uh, the, the cost of debt and to, you know, to show some growth in the business. But the reality is if we're buying this business and it performs as we're, is we're giving you from a debt case, we're going to be disappointed because it's not going to give us the equity returns, the equity returns that we want. So, so you, guys, you guys are getting some warrants alongside that's or some, some equity um, co-invest. No, 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 no. When I say, when I say equity case, I mean the sponsor's equity case, right? Yeah. So okay. Their equity case. So you're saying if it performs like that, then if it performs like they want it to, you know, if you look at the if you look at the bank, what we'll call the bank case that they give to all of the banks. If you look at the bank case, the returns that the private equity company would get is probably going to be your standard. You know, whenever you think about answering the question, is going to be your standard thirteen to seventeen and a half percent IRR, right? right? Yeah. But the reality is, the private equities case is probably about twenty five percent, right? Yeah, um, they wouldn't because they otherwise <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. So. That's 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 the discrepancy that I'm. That I'm talking so they're about. not so, so they're not actually sharing with you these these pie in the sky projections. They're kind of giving you right. a bank case, which is supposed to be like a conservative case to show that you guys are protected on the debt side. Exactly. Exactly. Fair. Okay. And when you and when you think about it, I mean that's the investors who the bank is selling to. That's what they're looking for, right? They're not they're not equity investors by the nature of the fact right. that they're debt investors. So therefore, their concern is: Am I going to get my Am I going to get my coupon and am I going to get my money back? Right. I don't mm-hmm. care if the business performs like this, if the business performs like that, yeah. as long as it performs to, to cover my, uh, you know, cover my investment. For sure. Okay. So let's jump quickly to the, back to your store. So you, you get your MBA, everything's great. You have the return offer, you move out to LA, you start, tell me how things progress. Cause at that point it was September, 2009. Yeah, it was exactly. like at the, well, that was like what the depths of the great financial crisis. I feel like it was pretty bad. Uh, I think it was it was the depths for sure. I think the uh, I think the market bottomed in March. Um, if I if I remember March correctly, 09? March 09? March 09, Yeah, okay. in yep. terms of you know in terms of the S and P. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was, but certainly you're. I mean, you're sitting here with your classmates, some folks who had offers to return to Lehman, and you know clearly those those no longer existed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, definitely a little bit, a little bit nerve wracking, but, um, you know, there was consistent updates from, you know, from, from folks who, you know, were the, the junior bankers and the Michigan alumni and whatnot to say, look, everything's fine. You know, you got your, 
we're not rescinding offers. Your offer is going to be there. We ended up, I think our start date ended up getting pushed out, uh, pushed, pushed back a month. If I, if I recall correctly. Um, but you know, no, no big deal. Um, so you're, so, you were only there for nine months. So tell me what happened as, as that kind of went on. So you started and then what kind of rumblings did you hear and why kind of start looking? Yeah. Um, so this is really, there was, really relevant for right now for kids. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so there was, uh, there was a little bit of, uh, of speculation that they were going to start, um, sort of bringing, bringing folks back to the, to the New York headquarters. Um, and either cutting down on the size of some of the offices or completely, completely eliminating some of the offices. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how did you hear about that? Just through the rumor mill? Exactly. Yeah. Like, so like other associates, like, Hey, did you hear or whatever? It, or it, yeah, changed? exactly. Exactly. Okay. Which is probably the, just some guy making it up and then mm-hmm. it, and then it goes around until it gets back to the same person who made it up. But, uh, yeah, but you know, look, it, 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 felt it felt somewhat relevant um and so i thought it made sense to just start um just start looking around and seeing what else was out there again going back to the point i i was enjoying la i wanted to at least give it a fair shake um Mm -hmm. you know before before feeling like i was forced back to new york so uh started looking around started interviewing um you know had a had offers from a couple of different spots but ultimately Again, I, how did I keep you get saying a couple this, offers in two thousand early two thousand ten? How did you pull that off? Well, because you mean, were still employed. <laughs> I, I think it's number. I mean, it always always helps to be still employed. And yeah. then again, I mean, you know, you're a junior, you're a junior associate, right? At the end of the day, I mean, it's not. You didn't even stick around for your first bonus. Did I did. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's a stub, like a six month. It's a stub. Yeah, yeah exactly. So okay, so the time you left wasn't that bad because you got your stub, and then you could you could jump ship a couple months later. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Do you and mind sharing what that stub was given? It was 2009, 2010. I assume it was 40 K 50 K. Like what was it? Uh, something like man, that. You're t- honestly, I, I don't even remember you're my guess. My memory. It, you're yeah. probably, you're probably right, but I, I, I'd have to go back and, uh, and look at an old statement. Now I, that, I honestly can't remember. Now that stub would probably be like 150. Is that right? Or a hundred or something like that. So I'm that, guessing in sounds- a, in a really that sounds bad. pretty nice. I can tell you it wasn't that. Yeah, um, and it really. Yeah, I don't. I, I, I honestly, I honestly do not remember. Um, but your numbers sound probably pretty, uh, pretty ballpark. We could probably pull up like some old salary data in the company database and probably try yeah. to see if we could pull it out. But yeah, I don't, ha- exactly. I don't have it offhand. But I, my guess is there are a lot of, <laughs> there were a lot of donuts given out, or zero bonuses, or really small bonuses. Um, yeah, I mean, again, like as a stub, they're not gonna. Yeah, you know, they're not gonna make it rain do anything on those well they're not going to do anything on those folks either right you can't zero like can't sit here and say somebody's been here for three months we're going to give you zero, like unless that person's done nothing right right okay fair so. enough so you start looking you get a couple offers yeah um one of them being barclays what else any other do you mind sharing the other firms that you got offers from and what those interviews were like yeah um so the other one that i was uh that i was seriously considering was Mollus. Mm-hmm. um that's an interesting decision yeah, it was a very interesting decision. Um, and it was not an easy one. I'll tell you that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what were the interviews like? Um, I would let's, say, let's talk the, about the decision first off. Like yeah, why, sure. when you did get the offers, 
So why was it tough? I mean, Molus was like, how it'd been four years, five years. Uh, yeah, four, four, yeah, four years. So he, yeah, they were exactly. off and they were off to the races, right? right they were, yeah, they were right. doing extremely well, yeah. extremely well. So yeah. You're kind of looking at that um, and thinking, Hmm. Yeah. Place to be. Place to be paid, paid extremely well. Um, you know, worked very, very hard. So it, it was, you know, sort of the, the standard banking payoff, which is, you know, it's going to be six, seven days a week. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, when January, February rolls around, you know, you're going to feel good about, uh, you know, feel good about your decision and feel good about, feel good about life for a little bit. And then, mm-hmm. you know, go back, go back to the grind. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I obviously knew some folks, um, over there given, just given the, the proximity, um, yep. both, both physically and, uh, and, and, and relationally, um, for the, uh, for the two offices. Um, and then Barclays, you know, was probably more of, a, and this goes back to the, to the interview question as well. Um, but Barclays was probably a little bit more of a lifestyle slash longer, you know, felt like it would have been a longer term decision at the time, um, in terms of what I, you know, career progression, I guess, if, if you will. And that turned out to be true. That is, well, yeah, I can't, I obviously, I can't say what would have happened on the other, on the other side. Cause I didn't, you would have burnt uh, out man. That decision. <laughs> <laughs> you would have burnt out. Come on. No, no, you, you might've been great and still been there. Who knows? Who knows? Right. I'm just joking. Yeah. Like, yeah. No, no, it's, it, it's, it's a great firm. Barclays is a great firm. So I could see that would have been a tough decision. So you did, you ended up going Barclays, but yeah, it was, you know, it was, it was a, it was a sponsor's, it was a sponsor's role and it was also West coast corporate coverage. So it kind of got me back to the, to the generalist that I wanted to be doing. So I I kept doing the financial sponsors, which I had the background with, and I got to go into more of corporate, uh, corporate finance. Um, so I liked, I liked that aspect of it. And, you know, again, just, culturally for me and and like you said i think that both firms are i think that both firms are great and i don't think that you can make a make a wrong decision with either of them but mm-hmm. at the time culturally for me it felt like it, it felt like the right place to be did you talk to a lot of associates to try and figure out okay is it 90 hour weeks or is it 60 70 hour weeks did you talk to people to get that frame um I, or making that the decision rea- the the reality is at that time I didn't really care because I knew it was going to be less than I was working. <laughs> so at both uh, at either, <laughs> uh, yeah, probably would have been about it. Probably would have been about equal at Molus. So yeah, I guess the I guess the answer would have been it's either going to be the exact same or it's going to be better. So it didn't didn't feel like the the need to have too much uh, too much conversation around that. Fair okay, and then um, talk to me a little bit. I'll let you go soon, but talk to me a little bit about kind of your progression through at Barclays in terms of like, what was it like in terms of why do you think you were so successful there in terms of getting promotions, stuff like that? Um, And this can be at any bank, but tell me about what you think set you apart um, with your teams and stuff like that, um, where they felt comfortable giving you the the promo from, you know, VP, VP to director, and then talk to me a little bit about that transition as well. Yeah. Then we'll call it. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, no, no, no problem. I mean, I I think I'll, I'll, um, sort of uh give a little asterisk on on the answer here because look today's today's world is definitely substantially harder when you are talking about the promotions than it was than it was back then i don't want to say like it was it was by no means rubber stamping but you know again thinking about thinking about the world today and and uh you know the 
um, the, the market conditions and everything like that. I think that there's, there's a lot more scrutiny given around, do we put this, you know, do we put this person from associate to VP and do we put this person from VP to director? And certainly do we put this person from director to, to MD? And um, you're saying so, that because of, uh, the current COVID impact right now, or just because in general, you think even before I, COVID it was getting harder. Yeah. I think in, I think in general, I mean, it's just, yeah. um, you know, it's becoming, it's becoming a more competitive, it's becoming a more cost competitive environment. Right. Okay. So the, the, you know, just look at all of the, look at all of the earnings and look at all of the, um, you know, uh, uh, statements around the releases and whatnot for, for the banks. Right. I mean, yeah. up until recently, the, the volatility just hadn't been there and the, the, the trading was getting, you know, was getting absolutely yeah. crushed. And that's obviously a huge, um, a huge revenue, uh, line item for all of these banks. So that was, there was a lot of difficulty around that. And then it's just as with, as with any industry, people are being asked to do more with less. Right. Yeah. And so you need to think about that as, a um, as you continue to progress, progress folks from, you know, from these various different levels and, you know, increase the salaries and, and increase the, the cost base. Um, so look for me, um, and you know, I don't, think that any of this is, uh, is exclusive to me. I'm sure that this applies to, to most people who have, you know, made a, a decently long career in banking, which is I had the view of as an associate and I, I took this view as a summer and I, you know, think that I, I continued to, to keep the mindset is I am here to put my head down and work as much as I possibly need to work. Right. And that's, that's it. Right. And I can't say that that's right or wrong because everybody has their own, you know, everybody has their own views of what they want their, um, you know, what they want their, their work life to be and what they want their personal life to be and what they want their, their work life balance to be. But for me, my view was I worked extremely hard, um, to get into business school. I worked extremely hard in business school and I worked extremely hard to get, to get this job. So I want to, I want to see it through and make sure that I, I can be as successful in, in this role as possible. So you so, actually had respect from the analysts then? <laughs> I, I, I tried to, um, you know, uh, that's tough. Our, right? it, it is, it is tough. Uh, especially with they, no analyst they, years behind you, you got the people going straight analyst to associate who are like modeling wizards. Tell me about like, anything. There. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I, I was fortunate that I, uh, well, number one, I, during the summer, I raised my hand a lot to do models. Um, mm -hmm. that was a big thing. I actually went over to, I went over to the analysts, like the full-time analysts and said, can I do the models for you? Mm -hmm. Um, and clearly they were, took probably seven times as long as the analysts could do them and, and were nowhere near as good, but at least they gave it to me and, and humored me. Mm -hmm. And then I gave it back to them and they probably just redid it themselves <laughs> or probably did it at the same time they, that I was doing it really. Um, but you know, I think that that was, that was a big point is that I just wanted to get comfort around comfort around the modeling and make sure that I knew my way around, around everything that was going on. Um, I was also in a unique position in which I had, again, because they, they slotted us into various verticals. So I only had one analyst in my financial sponsors, leverage finance, and she was a first year analyst. So <laughs> it was you're both me learning. as a first year, me as a first year associate and her as a first as a first year analyst and that was uh that was sort of the world right and there were too many projects to um just say you do the analyst and I do I do the associate so basically we kind of both did both did a little bit of everything to uh to get all of that done so I walked 
from UBS into Barclays feeling very, very confident about my, uh, about my bot, my modeling and my, and my technical skills. And again, that goes back to the, uh, what I was saying before about the, the leveraged finance, um, background as well is just extremely, extremely technical and gives you a good chance to, to really dig into the, dig into the numbers and the figures. So, uh, yeah, I'd like to think that I was, it was able to gain some, uh, some respect from the analysts, but they, you know, you have to ask them, they may have a different answer. I asked that just because oftentimes post MBAs with, without the banking experience that want to come yep. in and just be managers, does it go very well? It's the, yeah, it, it, <laughs> worst, uh, worst decision that you can possibly make in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of, of being respected within the role. It may work out for the seniors, you know, you may be able to, to kind of get the, uh, get the accolades of the directors and the MDs, but you're certainly not going to be, not going to be liked within the junior community. So tell me a little bit about kind of just real quick, your, your promotion cycle. So it was about three years at yep. Barclays and up to VP. Yeah. How much, how much did your role change? Were you starting to do any sort of, I mean, you're obviously probably getting a little more in front of clients. Um, yeah. Any, anything, any sourcing at all at the VP level? Anything like that? Um, not, not really. And, you know, again, my answer is going to be a bit different than other folks that you ask because of the financial sponsors coverage yep. role. Right. Mm-hmm. So there was a, I was working, I was working directly with an MD on the, uh, on the West coast coverage stuff. And so I was doing some sourcing in that regards. I mean, obviously it was mostly, you know, trying to get and trying to get in touch with folks. And then he, he takes it over and does all the, uh, you know, all, all the smooth talking and heavy lifting and stuff like that. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so it, it's a little bit different, you know, being financial sponsors coverage, right? Because you've really got the, the senior directors and the MDs who have the, who have the senior level relationships. And so obviously you can kind of get to know the, the mid-level folks at, at the sponsors, but a lot of that stuff sort of, um, just evolves over time as you work with the mid-level guys and then they become senior guys at sponsors and you become a senior guy at the bank and then, and then you have, uh, you have that relationship there. So, um, but you know, how does the, how does the role change? I guess what I would say is if, if you think that the role changes from associate to VP, then you're probably not doing the associate role correctly. Um, Eric. or you're, you're not going to be a high ranked associate, I guess, if you will. So, you know, you should really be sort of as a, as a second and certainly as a third year associate already doing, doing VP level tasks, uh, yep. in order to, you know, in order to make sure that you get that promotion. So it's, it's sort of the weird thing of, okay, I've got the promotion. It's not like my life changed from, you know, Friday to, to Monday when I got the promotion. It's just, you, you start, start to yeah. start to do, you start to do less of the, less of the, uh, you know, the, the, the junior associate, um, you know, senior analyst stuff and more of the, you know, more of the VP and, and, and junior director stuff. And it just sort of evolves over time. Right. So again, as you're in your last year associate year, and then as you're in your, for, you know, in your first year VP year, you're kind of, that's, that's sort of where the transition, the transition takes place. And tell me about your last year as a VP promotion to director. Tell me that transition. Yep. Cause I think that's, that's less, there's less stuff on that, at least on Wall Street Oasis in terms of. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and again, I think it's probably a little bit more, uh, a little bit more complex in today's, in, in today's world than it was at that time. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think the view is if you went up fast, right? Three years is fast. 
Let's go from that's stand, yeah, standard. Three standard VP to director. Yeah, yeah, three, three, three associate or whatever, three and a half associate. I thought it was three, three to five. Three VP. I thought it was three to five is what I was always told. But anyways, that is that's director to MD. Got it. Or maybe it's maybe it's changed. Maybe it's changed for okay. uh, for VP to director now. Um, but when I was so you're probably more in the role, it was okay. It was, so, it, was it was certainly three. Okay. Um, yeah. So. I think the general view is do the senior bankers feel like you can be a senior banker, right? I think that that's, that's kind of the big question is if you're a senior VP, you're probably proven that you have the technical skills, um, you know, to, to do the job. And the reality is as a senior VP, you're not, you know, again, you're, you obviously you still need to understand the model. You, you, know, you still need to know how it works, but you're not, you know, you're not necessarily in the weeds on the, on the day to day and nobody's really going to drop a model in front of you and say, you need to, you know, crank this out in, 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 in two hours, right? You just need to know the fundamentals of how does it work? How does, how are the numbers being driven and, and does this all tie together? Right. Yeah. Um, you know, the, do the margins make sense? Do the growth rates make sense? Uh, everything like that, the cash flows. Um, so if, if you're in that level, you probably have, the technical capacity to do, to do the job. Um, mm -hmm. so I think then the question just becomes, does this guy have the, uh, have the wherewithal to be a senior banker, right? Do we feel comfortable putting him in front of him or her in front of clients? Do we feel comfortable, you know, believing that this person's going to, to be able to, to go out and, you know, use your term source, source deals and, uh, win business and gain the, you know, gain the confidence of clients and, and, and all of that. Um, you know, again, I'm not, I'm obviously not sitting in the room around those, uh, you know, around those interviews, but that would be my imagination of, of, uh, what they're looking for in terms of going, going VP to director. Cause the reality is as a director, the goal is just getting, getting that person to MD. Got it. And so when you kind of took that promotion from VP to director and along the way, um, did you already know you were going to go to London? Um, when did that discussion happen? Was it like after the Yeah, that's promotion? a good that's a good question. Uh the discussion I think I knew that I was gonna get the promotion, but the discussion happened the discussion happened before the promotion. So you knew you were and, going and they said okay, they'd approved it. Uh my let me think about the let me think about the timing. My discussion with my with my manager was mm -hmm. before the promotion. The discussion with everybody else was <laughs> after the promotion. Yeah. So uh, I, I think just to your point, it, it, you know, get the get the promotion before you start to you know sort of start to uh, start to rock the boat on that. And I, I think you know if there's if there's any. Uh, any key takeaway from that? It's just kind of a question of what is, what do you feel like your relationship is with your, with your line manager? And, you know, if it's, if it's good enough and you're comfortable having the conversation, then the last thing you want to do is put them in a lurch and, you know, let them know last minute, Oh, Hey, here's what I want to do or put them in a, put them in a bad situation. Um, but you know, again, you also need to need to make sure you're looking out for yourself as well. And so move to London. Why? Uh, seems like you were on a, on a fast and furious path up to MD. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, uh, I, you know, as, as all good stories go, I met a girl, uh, mm -hmm. and so she, uh, we, we met in Los Angeles, but she happens to be, um, happens to be Austrian. And so my German was effectively non-existent at the time and, uh, is, is now just really bad. 
Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the conversation was, uh, she wanted to, she wanted to be back closer to closer to her family and, um, you know, Los Angeles was great, but I didn't have any personal ties per se, other than my personal enjoyment of the sun and the beach. Um, and so we, uh, I, I agreed to, to give London a shot. So that was effectively the, the impetus for the move. And do you feel like that transition was very tough since it was the LA culture to London culture? What was the, what it, was it like in terms of just culturally different and yeah, banking from one side of the pond to the other? It was, uh, it was very culturally different. Yeah. So it, it's, it's interesting because I mean the exact same firm, right. And yeah. the, the culture across the firm is, is obviously very, very coherent, but, um, you know, as anyone who's been through the process will tell you, uh, you know, the office in New York is different than the office in LA is different than the office in Chicago is different than the office in Houston for, for any bank that you're talking about. And let alone that, if you're going to go work for the tech team or you're going to go work for the industrials team or you're going to go work for the oil and gas team, those guys have their own personality as well, right? Mm -hmm. So while there's an overarching culture of a bank, there's obviously subcultures within, within each, of the, each of the groups, each of the teams, each of the offices. And so certainly that was, you know, that was the case going from, going from London. And on top of that, just, uh, just, just uh, country culture as well, right? Being, being an American sitting in, uh, you know, sitting in the UK, uh, it's just a different, uh, a, a different world in terms of. Were you how... welcome? Were you seen as an odd duck kind of being? <laughs> <laughs> um, and what about, no, with I think... what about with clients? Were they like, why is you know, this? The, inter- the interesting thing is um, a lot, it, it's very international. I mean, just London in general is very international, but the banks and the, and the uh, private equity firms and, and really all of, the, all of the areas of finance in London are so international, yeah. right? Because that's the financial hub of Europe. Right. So it's not as though you're sitting there walking it's in. It's not going, odd because okay, like I'm, the U- I'm US and everybody's UK, right? It's, yeah. I'm US, he's Italian. UK, he's Italian, he's French, yeah. he's German, he's Spanish, he, you know, so... Right. It, it it didn't really didn't feel like a fish out of water type situation. Um, and, and probably I was probably even in a better position because I actually speak English for my main language as opposed to, you know, thinking about all these other people who have to come from another country and, and yeah. do business in a, in a second language. Yeah, true. So tell me a little bit about kind of, you were there for a good run. Tell me about kind of yeah. the impetus to kind of leave next steps. What's, what's kind of in the future for you and then we'll call it. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, I was there for, uh, there for about four years. Um, what was the impetus to leave? Um, you know, I think, I think at the end of the day, um, London just didn't feel like, uh, feel like a long-term, a long-term place for me. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it, it was fun. It was a, it was a good run. I think if you were, uh, 22, it's probably a different, uh, a different vibe than, you know, than, than your late thirties. Um, so, you know, having a, having a wife, having a, having a young kid and, and we just sort of, I guess, took the, uh, took more of the family decision than the, than, than the business decision at that point in time. And Good for you know, you. ultimately, ultimately Not- decided to do something a little different. And now you're in Austria. Now we're in Austria. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. And so anything, uh, on the horizon, you think you're more entrepreneurial, you think you can kind of just get something more corporate. 
what's the thought process for you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, thinking, thinking entrepreneurial, thinking, uh, thinking startup, um, you know, not certainly not ruling out corporate, certainly not ruling out, you know, not ruling out a return to finance in any, in any regards. I mean, I, you know, wouldn't have, wouldn't have been in banking for, for 10 years if I didn't love, didn't love finance. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I think that all avenues are, are probably open at this point in time, but, uh, you know, we'll sort Very of, cool. uh, sort of see where the chips land and, you know, in a fortunate position that I can, can, can take a little bit of time to, to think about things and, uh, what a run. Know, digest different opportunities from Enron to director at Barclays. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And <laughs> pretty good only, run. Only took me 20 years. So, uh, <laughs> very cool, man. Well, listen, um, anything else you want to share before we call it for the young, uh, young listeners out there? No, I mean, I, I guess, I, I guess to wrap up, look, I think it's, uh, I mean, especially for, for the folks that are, are sitting here thinking about getting into banking, I, I think it's still a great place to be, um, you know, whether it's a, whether it's a long-term career or just a, a stepping stone uh, in, in the start of a long career. Um, I, I think it's a fantastic, a fantastic place to, to get started, right? And you learn a tremendous amount, you're given a ton of opportunity that you would not otherwise get in, uh, you know, in other roles or other jobs, and, and you're given that very, very quickly. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, I think it's something great to consider and, you know, uh, but at the end of the day, it's not, you know, it's, it, it's not for everyone. And I think that, you know, as you sort of think back uh, or as you, as you think through, uh, you know, what you want to do with your future, just kind of, uh, you know, assess the pros and cons of, of what you want to do and figure out if it's something that makes sense. Great. I think it's very wise advice. We'll leave it there. Tim, thanks great. so much for joining us. Yeah. Thanks, Patrick. Appreciate the time. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way, patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.